Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast, topic edition, longer edition, Monday edition, whatever you want to call it. And today we're going to be talking about the time. Why are we talking about the time, Patty? And how are you this week? I am, first of all, I am absolutely, positively fantastic. Going out of my mind, not being allowed out of my house. Um, it's pretty weak, but okay. See, humans are actually social animals that are not meant to be caged. You might be a lesser form of human, but the rest of us, we actually like engaging with other human beings, being social and being outside, you know? But anyway, look, I digress. Um, we already knew you were subhuman. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so the time. Today's episode, we are talking about, we're continuing this nutrition series, and we're talking about the temporal dimension of food if you will, right? And what I mean by that is we're talking about the, the timing of your food intake because this is something that people either fall on two ends of the spectrum and like most things, the answer is, you know, in the middle. Um, and what I mean by that is some people will say food timing does not matter at all. It literally does not matter, right? And there are arguments and points to that argument that are completely correct, right? And then there are also those individuals that say, oh, food timing is everything. If you are even off by 30 seconds, you fucked it. You know, you might as well give up, you know? Um, and you see this debate, well, you used to see this debate a lot more. Um, I think the, see, the evidence-based crowd, whatever you want to call them, did shift the conversation to a good point, but like most things, like when you do that, the pendulum just swings wildly and they, they kind of shifted the conversation to the point where they were like, yep, it doesn't matter at all, you know? And that doesn't really help most individuals because most individuals are clearly aware that food timing does matter to some extent, right? Because if it didn't, you just eat one meal per day and never feel hungry, never feel uh, lower in energy, you know, you get great body composition changes, all this, all the beneficial stuff from the diet, you know? Um, but that's just not the case for most individuals, right? So in this episode, we're going to just talk it through uh, a little bit more about the, the time dimension to food. Then we're also going to touch on uh, the topic of kind of intermittent fasting, because that is that I think if we explain the, the time dimension to food and then we put it in a more practical setting of like say intermittent fasting that also answers a few questions that some people may have um, and it obviously puts it in a more practical kind of setting itself and then we're going to touch on just at the end uh, the topic of chrononutrition which is basically what we're talking about but also different um if you're actually talking about like a, a research setting right and so that's the kind of flow of this episode, or at least what we hope to cover in this episode. So, <clears throat> Gary, obviously, again, we've discussed that there's this swing, this pendulum back and forth. But the, the crux of the issue is, is there or do we need to time our food intake? You know, um, I want to touch on this from like two perspectives, from the calorie perspective and then a, a protein perspective, because those two things, we cover those two, like you, I think you get a better understanding of the, the interplay going on itself. Now, I don't want to go in this 
this episode, I don't want this to be kind of descended into uh, a discussion of like AMP and M- AMPK and mTOR because we could do that. It's not, it's not exactly the, well, first of all, this medium is not exactly the best way to convey those messages. Like you just, you need to see stuff. You need to have a little bit more explanation, a little bit more in depth um, and just talking through it doesn't really fit the, the medium isn't right to do that. You know, we have articles on site about that, that are better to describe that. But just from a calorie perspective, Gary, do we need to time our calories? Like, what, what's the story there? Like, do we, does it even matter? Like, are the, are the people that are saying, you know, food timing doesn't matter at all? Are they right? Or are the people that are saying, you need to eat six meals per day, you need to be eating every two hours, you need to have a post-workout meal, or else, you know, you, you literally the workout was irrelevant, you know? Who, who's right? Where, where, like, where do we fall on this kind of spectrum? Yeah, so I want to start by making a kind of a, a general point or a meta point in line with what you said. And what you said was that in relation to that pendulum swing, because as much as people in the evidence-based community like to you know, say that they're not dogmatic and that you know, we're critical thinkers, etc., very often you can be, consider yourself to be evidence-based and still be just as dogmatic. And like, I, I, know, I know you listen to um, Eric Weinstein 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 as well and one of the things that he that he says is like anytime Trump says something for example Donaldo the Don Donnie you can't just put a negative sign in front of it and expect to be correct and that's what a lot of people um, do when they see something that maybe they, they disagree with what Trump says or something like that because he's a particularly good example that that actually translates really well here because Trump could say something that's actually really really correct and like would actually be supported by evidence and the same people who would be critical all the time will just put a negative sign in front of it and try to knock down anything that he says which basically makes you you're, you're not a critical thinker in that case you just maybe happen to be right when when trump is wrong and you try to make those those examples really clear so that that happens here in the evidence-based community as well where when people, like for example, when, when you talk about fasting, for example, um, fasting and rigid meal timing from bodybuilding circles would be good examples of this. So you've kind of got the health side of things where you've got gurus who say that fasting can fix everything and it's going to prolong your life, etc. Um, in the bodybuilding sphere, you've got people who say meal timing is everything. It's really important that you nail your protein right away the second after your workout. Um, inter-meal uh, amino acids and things like that. And as a result, the people in the evidence-based community sometimes just want to put that negative sign in front of that to combat it at all costs. And we can be end up being just as incorrect in that case. Because to say that fasting has no utility and it's 100% just the same as continuous caloric restriction you don't have evidence to support that point either, you know, and that that's not a fair conclusion. Similarly, if you were to turn around and say that meal timing doesn't matter at all and you just have to hit your calories, that is also incorrect. And from my perspective, you are no different than the person who's being militant or rigid about, you know, meal timing be the most important thing in the world. Okay. So recognize that thinking critically about this stuff and being scientific does not just mean opposing things that seem to be incorrect at all costs. You have to try and find, okay, where is the truth? So that brings us now on to that discussion of like, where, where does timing actually matter? So like this answer does vary depending on whether you're talking about 
health performance or body composition. You know, there are some differences there. And I think for most people, we can kind of hit a nice middle ground between all of those variables um, for most of our audience. So most of our audience listening to this, whether you're a personal trainer or you're just an individual trying to improve your own health performance or body composition, the nutrition guidelines that suit most of your needs are going to take care of your health, your performance, and your body composition. Okay. So like you don't need to, to take a, a huge trade-off in any one of those areas. Um, and from my perspective, when I think about why, what guidelines do I want people to kind of take on board, most of the time we're talking about trying to distribute protein intake across the day. Okay. And like a lot of the time people will illustrate this by trying to give extreme examples. So if you, if you admit that, let's say, having all of your protein for two weeks in one meal every two weeks, if you admit that that's not necessarily optimal, then there has to be some point at which we accept the timing is actually important. Okay, so is it once a week? Is it once a day? Is it a couple of times per day? And I think if you're to actually look at the research, um, the outcome that would seem to be you know, pretty sound is having multiple protein feedings per day with the importance of that increasing in your hierarchy the more you're worried about muscle building or strength, okay? So if they're the outcomes you're really trying to chase, I'd be looking for at least three protein feedings per day, okay? We're not going to be talking about protein targets in this, in the, in this episode. Go back to the previous episodes. But in terms of timing, I think three feedings per day is probably pretty sound, um, maybe a little bit more depending on how serious you're taking your goals. But Just- that's going to... Just, just on that, like it's actually, again, you can go back if you just understand, like say the, we'll call it the physiology or the biochemistry of it. Like there's no, this is actually technically incorrect, but there's no way for your body to store amino acids, right? Like the way your body stores carbohydrates, the way your body stores fats, like there's a, a mechanism to store those, right? That's, that's what we call them the energy substrates, if you will. Like there's a, they're basically like, here's your energy substrate. We can store it in a battery somewhere in the body, you know, either as like muscle glycogen, liver glycogen, um, or as like fatty acids, triglycerides, you know, actually like packed away in, in an adipocyte, right? Um, but with protein, like amino acids is broken down. It's like where they don't get stored anywhere. Now, that's not actually technically correct. Like they do actually get transiently stored in like the, I believe it's called the splenic area, which is basically just your abdomen. Um, um, like around your internal organs, they basically just are around there. Um, that's kind of... Uh, controversial to an extent like that's not fully elucidated what's going on there but there is some transient storage but the main way you store amino acids is in your muscles right like that's that's your store of a protein right so if you look at how fast you can build muscle then that's how fast you can store protein right or store amino acids so if you can't store this nutrient that you're eating that means that you have to eat it more frequently if it's needed in the body right and obviously again there's a lot of signaling processes like we, we touched on like the the mTOR stuff um that you know m- maybe would influence us if we like gary said are more interested in muscle building itself you know but from a very you know practical perspective if we just look at it and go you know three to four protein feedings per day seems to get the majority of the population you know, that seems to work for the majority of people, regardless of size, regardless of goals, regardless of whatever. If we just get three to four protein servings per day, 
you know, we could say there's a minimum threshold for each of those servings and that's fine. Like, you know, maybe we go, oh, we want to have three to five grams of leucine at each of those servings. Like we can get into really nitty gritty with this stuff. But, you know, if you just go, I'm going to have three to four servings of protein per day, you're pretty good to go. Now, again, with that, you probably do want to space them out a, a bit more, like saying, oh, I want to have three servings of protein per day and eating it at you know, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., and 7 p.m. Like that's obviously not the exact same as eating it at, you know, 7 a.m., uh, 1 p.m., and I don't know, 7 p.m. You know, like obviously they're completely different things. Um, but again, if you just take a step back and actually understand the the, the biochemistry, the digestion, the physiology, if you want to call it that, um, of what's going on, then you can make more informed choices. However, you don't need to go that far back to just realize like even on a practical perspective, you know, if you're like, okay, protein helps with the muscle building process, protein helps with the recovery process, protein helps with all of these health related processes and I can't store it. Oh, it's probably a good idea if I'm eating to eat some protein. Right. And again, practically speaking, most people are eating three to four times per day. So just from a very practical perspective, just putting a section of protein at each meal, just makes sense and you just so happen to get a good distribution of that protein timing throughout the day then yeah 100 percent. and i think like people do kind of like to reduce it to these real simple messages which is important from a like delivering the information perspective like that is important that we don't start talking about individual amino acids and stuff but it's always important to know that there's a lot more going on you know under the hood as in like even even the difference between like what initially triggers muscle protein synthesis and then having the building blocks available like that varies between different protein types you know like not all protein types are going to lead to the exact same response but as you begin to micromanage that stuff it just becomes impractical so with, that's why basically these rules of thumb can be pretty sound and the other thing to note with that is that your response to a given nutrient varies depending on whether or not you've been active, you know, it depends on what the meal was previously. So for example, if in your context, you said, if you were to eat your protein at five, six and 7 PM, you're not going to get the same response to that protein feeding at 6 PM as you did to the one at 5 PM. So there's different things or different responses, depending on what you've eaten previously, um, your energy status, your, uh, whether or not you've been exercising, etc. So there's definitely a lot more to it than just like calories and macro totals. But the point is that you get most of you get most of your things sorted by having very simple rules of thumb. So for the most part, that kind of th at least three protein feedings is probably a pretty sound um, thing to aim for. Now, with that said, like that's primarily when you're thinking about someone who's into right. I'm doing my hypertrophy and strength training. Like, does that matter all that much for general health? Like, is there going to be a massive um, up? up uptake in, 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 in your fat loss outcomes or anything like that versus having your protein at one meal? Probably not. Like you, you could make the case, but I think it's a little bit less of a priority. So overall, that's going to be more of a priority. The more you're concerned with your actual muscle mass. Personally, like you're going to chime in, just give me one second. Personally, I eat probably like two, I, I spread my protein across two to three meals most of the time okay maybe four sometimes but very rarely anymore i would probably bump that up a little bit if muscle building was more of a priority than it is for me but for me i'm always thinking about what's easiest from an adherence perspective what do i enjoy most what allows me to you know cook nice food and things like that or have the meals that i enjoy 
without having to constantly think about, all right, it's, it's just the protein I'm thinking about. Um, so, so you do have to consider where that fits in with your priorities, because if you're someone that just really enjoys the culinary experience, you know, you enjoy cooking really nice meals for yourself that are a bit more calorie dense, then it actually just might suit you to have two meals per day versus three. And if you were trying to increase your capacity for muscle building, maybe you'd add an extra shake to fill in the third protein serving, but maybe you wouldn't and you just accept that, right, I'm getting the vast majority of my results by hitting my overall protein intake, spreading it out a little bit, um, and I don't need to sweat the details, you know? Yeah, and obviously it has to be you know noted that Gary is in fact 180 kilos of lean mass, so obviously yes. he's not he's not interested in you know getting bigger. <laughs> that that has to be factored in. Um, no, but seriously, yeah, the this also I, I didn't think we'd touch on it here, but I thought we'd get to it later. But this also goes to the the topic that this is something that's really hard when you're reading research or you're trying to interpret a message that someone's putting out because effectively. Something you say to someone who is tracking, like actively tracking their nutrition, their calories, their macronutrients, all that kind of stuff versus something you say to someone who is not actively tracking that, but still trying to look after their diet, that can be two completely different messages. For example, like protein intake helps with satiety, right? So you feel fuller for longer. Now, if you've never tracked your calories before, you have no idea how to, you know, like evaluate the caloric load of the meal in front of you you know then having some protein with that meal is probably a good idea just from a practical perspective because it keeps you fuller for longer so your next meal is then probably going to be a little bit you know smaller as a result you know so for like gary was saying for like your general population probably doesn't matter a huge amount if you have like i need to have like exactly three to five grams of leucine at each meal you know like that probably doesn't you know, matter too much to your fucking nan down the road, you know, who's like, oh, I just want to be healthy until I'm 90 or whatever, you know, and um, it probably doesn't matter a huge amount. However, it does matter from the perspective of, you know, having some protein at that meal is probably going to keep them fuller for a little bit longer, maybe keep their energy levels a little bit higher. So, you know, they might do a bit more activity day to day, then, you know, their steps might be higher, whatever it is. And, um, <clears throat> and they're able to eat at a, a calorie appropriate level for their output because they're not, you know, ravenously hungry. They're not, <clears throat> excuse me, the coronavirus get me. Um, they're not ravenously hungry come like 10 o'clock and eating 30 biscuits, you know, um, and then being like, oh, not really hungry for lunch. I'm not going to have a, a real meal for lunch. And it kind of starts off this cascade, you know, whereas if they'd had some protein for breakfast, then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm actually better able to stick to my calories however if you're tracking your calories you're actively tracking your your calories your macronutrients you're using something like my fitness pal that's just not an issue that you think of you know you're just like all right if i'm going to eat some biscuits i'll just include them in my my tracking you know Um, and while yeah we can argue that it's not optimal and maybe you are going to feel hungrier later in the day or whatever um if you are not tracking you're not actively tracking your calories like not having protein at a meal can actually be the difference between uh being on track with your the, your calorie needs versus not being on track you know so effectively like when, when we're discussing the, the timing aspect of things and this will become more apparent when we actually do discuss like chrono nutrition um you you have to really distinguish between who are we talking about what's the population are we talking about someone who is actively tracking their calories or are we talking about someone who is free living you know they're not tracking their calories you know maybe they are trying to improve their diet but they're, they're not actively in the process of like logging everything that they eat because the advice then potentially changes. Because if I say eat some protein with all of your meals, um, 
because it's going to keep you fuller for longer between each of those meals and as a result reduce your overall calorie intake throughout the day because you're not snacking in between meals then that could be the simplest uh, protocol that you bring in to actually get results with someone who is you know not really tracking their calories you know however it's a it's a hard one to fully you know tease out all of the little minutiae of it you know but with that said i probably would just even for your fucking nan down the road be like yeah it's probably a good idea to have protein with all of your meals do you need to sweat it and be like oh there's only two grams of leucine in this this protein feeding you need to bang that right up i probably wouldn't sweat it that much however i would probably still put an emphasis on having some protein at each of your meals you know and like gary said that can be we'll say three main meals per day you know where you're like all right i'm just gonna have i'm gonna try and make sure that my main meals of the day which for most people um at least in our kind of western culture you have like a, a breakfast a lunch a dinner you know um so having some protein feeding at all of those now it doesn't need to be a huge like you know, like when people think of a protein feeding maybe they're thinking of like i don't know 200 300 grams of chicken or ham or beef or something like it doesn't need to be that at each of your meals but like something like 15 30 to maybe even up to 50 grams of protein spread on each of those meals it gets you up to your target that little bit easier and that can look like a variety of different things like i know people have a very hard time thinking of like protein sources for breakfast but there are actually so many like you've got eggs you've got milk you've got like yogurt like there's there's a variety of things that you know we would eat as traditional breakfast foods that are actually um high in protein like i always say it just half trolling but also completely serious like whey and oats is a traditional irish meal right and everyone always goes on like oh yeah this is a new thing where i'm like i'm adding my uh you know protein to my oats and i'm like this is this is exactly you know uh, this is the the new fit fam thing but that is an old irish recipe because you know when you're you're separating your your curds in your way like they they're not going to throw out that way like right currently you know we use it for like industry where you know like the protein industry or feed it to like the pigs or something like that you know you, you want to recycle that nitrogen like the old irish used to do it they just used to put it in their oats you know so that is an old irish recipe and that is the way you would get protein a protein feeding in the morning you know so like there are ways to go about it it's not a, it's not some revolutionary thing or again like i said i always say it as well like kippers traditional irish breakfast you know like again you're getting your protein feeding in the morning you know so there are ways to go about it to spread your protein intake throughout the day and unfortunately a lot of people just don't weren't, weren't raised um they weren't raised proper, Gary. You know, they weren't raised. With, uh, they weren't raised with protein feeding spread throughout the day, so it can be something very new to them, even though it's not new to the human experience. You know. Yeah, like that conversation about uh, protein feedings in the morning is definitely something I have with a lot of clients because they just kind of they kind of freak out about it, not realizing that like it doesn't mean you have to have a big steak. It doesn't. It doesn't even mean you have to have a couple of scoops of whey. Like it can can be as simple, like you said. Oats, I think, are 14 grams of protein per 100 grams, something like that. Like, that's that's a good bit of protein, you know? And obviously, like, maybe the amino acid profile isn't perfect, but you supplement that 100 grams of oats with 200 milliliters of, of milk. Um, you probably added another, what is, what, what's milk? Like, 5 grams of protein per 100, something like that. Um, you're up to, you know, 24 grams of protein. Bit of peanut butter on, on top. And granted, like that might be too many calories for, for, for some people, but a bit of peanut butter on top, you know, another few grams and you're up around your kind of 30, 
30 grams protein serving like sorted before you ever consider like do i need to add whey do i need to add yogurt like yogurt is another perfect example so yeah it is doable to get these protein sources and i think you brought up a really important point there that i was very keen to make in this episode in general it's more important when we talk about fasting and that is that we can't start every conversation with the qualifier that uh oh yeah, it just doesn't matter once you're tracking your calories because that's not an assumption that you go into every conversation with. Like for example, I don't track my calories. For the last two and a half, three years, I've probably haven't tracked my calories for more than a few weeks at a time maybe. Um, I'm so when I 2,000 days of continuous tracking because <laughs> how neurotic I am. So when I make my nutrition decisions, they're not based on like uh, solely all right, well, it doesn't matter because I track my calories. They're based on, right, what, 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 what suits my schedule? What's likely to lead me to eat an appropriate amount of calories, whether that's more or whether that's less? Um, and what, what's likely to keep me full? Um, how do I you know, enjoy my meals and still hit those calorie targets, et cetera? And that varies over time. Like, you know, when I was in, when, when we were in college and I was, you know, training in the gym and training in jujitsu and cycling to and from college and getting lots of steps and stuff, like my main consideration was, all right, how can I make sure that I actually get enough calories to fuel all of this? Okay. So the way that I was making decisions was in line with how can I basically leverage the, when I'm hungriest, um, to try and eat the most calories. And then like right now, when I'm a little bit less active, we're stuck at home trying to pull off a little bit of body fat. My decisions are based more on, okay, how can I go the opposite direction and, and eat a diet that leads me to eating less calories spontaneously without having to, to think too much about it? Okay, so when we are coming into these conversations and we're thinking about food timing and stuff like that, you do have to remember that other people don't track calories and that it's a good idea, even from an adherence perspective while tracking calories, to do the things that support someone's satiety, their general routine, and overall adherence, and that we can't just conclude every conversation with, oh yeah, it just doesn't matter, just, just track your calories, okay? Um, so that does come into a lot of dietary discussions in general. Like for example, if you look at some nutrition studies, what you might see is that oh, there was no difference between, let's say, a low-carbohydrate and a low-fat diet. There was no difference. Both worked the exact same for weight loss. And that's a fine kind of research conclusion, but it's not necessarily a conclusion that's an appropriate conclusion for a nutritionist or a personal trainer or someone who's trying to help an individual. Because what you have to realize is that on that spectrum of responses on either a low fat or a low carbohydrate diet, or it could be a fasting diet versus continuous energy restriction. There's a spectrum of responses there and your client is somewhere on that spectrum and you don't initially know where that is. So you could come into it, you know, with your evidence-based cap on and think, Oh yeah, your the diet, the macronutrients, but does not matter for you once you hit your calories but it might actually be the case that one of your clients is actually someone who does much better on a lower carbohydrate diet, or it might be the case that one of your clients does much better on a lower fat diet. So you do have to keep that stuff open. And the same can be said for meal timing in this discussion. So in terms of protein, that's that squared away. Overall calories, um, in terms of like distributing them throughout the day, basically they're going to follow your protein intake. Like that's the way I look at it. If you're having three meals per day to get in your protein, your calories are for the most part going to be relatively evenly distributed across that um however like that's not necessarily always the case so if someone is um, training for example it might be the case that they want to have more energy around the training window um, and that's definitely 
definitely something I do advise for a lot of my clients that they kind of, you know, spread their, especially if you're in a deficit and you find that energy is a problem, um, putting, putting energy, more of your energy, your daily energy intake around that, that peri workout window can be useful. And typically like in the, in the real world, that does kind of work a little bit better with a four meal structure. Like for, for at least for a lot of people I find that are more athletic and they have a higher calorie intake and they're more concerned about performance, I kind of nudge from that three meal structure, the basic three meal structure that I would follow most of the time to a four meal structure. The reason for that being, if someone, let's say, has their breakfast at 8 a.m., they have their lunch at 12 or 1 and they're training at 6 then the gap between that one o'clock feeding and the training at six is quite large for me to say that, oh, will we put dinner before and not eat after or put dinner after and not eat before? So you'd actually be better off in that context to have a meal maybe one to three hours before and you know pretty much as soon as after because you're not going to say oh eat three hours after 8 p.m and then you're going to bed you know um so yeah the energy distribution um does matter from a fueling perspective from an adherence perspective um and yeah that that would be my, my basic summary for athletic individuals maybe consider distributing across the or around the workout window for most people, you can distribute it relatively evenly. There might be benefits to having more of your energy earlier in the day, which we will um, get onto. But again, that does depend on the individual because while that may be the case for, uh, for let's say, general health in the general population, if someone is training at 6 p.m. and they're in a deficit and, and I know that they need to be well-fueled, my priority is getting that energy intake around the workout window as opposed to saying, oh no, let's not eat too much at night because sports nutrition and general health nutrition, while there's lots of crossover, not always the same. Yeah, like, again, we have to talk about the actual population, like who was yeah. the advice, who, who are listening to this? Like, I'm going to give a few examples here. Like for a general population person who is maybe, you know, we'll, we'll say just very sedentary individual, right? In that case, you know, you can just eat your calories whenever. It, it, it literally doesn't matter. Right. And I know we were saying like, you know, saying it doesn't matter is kind of short sighted and it's not like a great heuristic to use. But, you know, it kind of doesn't matter. Eat to your preference. Like, do you like bigger breakfasts? Do you like bigger lunches? Do you like bigger dinners? What you know, meal distribution allows you to more accurately stay to a calorie load that is appropriate for your level of activity, you know, and um, whatever it is, find it out. You know, maybe that is a, a small breakfast, a small lunch and a bigger dinner. That's fine. Do whatever, to, whatever you need to do to stay on track with your, your, your calories. Right. And again, we'll, we'll touch more on that again in the, the fasting and stuff. Right. But if you, again, you layer in some activity into that. So again, that could be, you're just an active individual day to day. Like you have a very, you know, uh, manual intensive, like manual labor intensive job, you know, maybe you're a builder, you're a bricklayer, something like that, you know, where you're like, I'm literally burning through calories, like nobody's business, you know, and um, then, you know, you probably do need to have a bit more of an even spread of your calories. Like you need to have a, a good breakfast, you need to have a good lunch, you need to have a good dinner, just because it's like, well, I, I burned through so many calories just doing my day to day activity that it, this, this is something that I need to prioritize and this is where a lot of you know uh we'll call them like wholesome meals came from or like like i traveled through america like i literally drove all over america um last summer and like obviously i like eating food and um, so you know you're trying out like 
we'll call them traditional breakfasts and stuff. And like the way they are set up is to fuel, like say you're a rancher or something, you know, like it's to set up to fuel that individual. That breakfast is huge because someone's eating that at, you know, five, 6 a.m., whatever it is, because they're going for a day out on the fucking ranch, you know? So they need to have a huge breakfast to fuel that activity because they're only going to bring like a sandwich with them or fucking some jerky or something, you know? Um, so their lunch is going to be small, but then they come back for dinner and the dinner is big then again, you know? Because they're like, I'm fueling before my day's activity, which is whatever fucking 12 hours of, you know, farm labor. Um, and then they're like, all right, I'm going to have a big dinner when I come back as well. So I only need to have a small lunch as a result, you know? So that's a, uh, they've organized their nutrition in a way that fits their lifestyle, you know? And again, that's what an individual needs to do. Now, when we layer on something like activity, just day-to-day life, again, you need to do the same thing. If we layer on the activity specific to say, you know, organized exercise, like resistance training or something like that, you know, it's really like people put way or put a lot of stock into this. Be like, oh, like you need to have your, your sports nutrition, you need to have like, you know, two hours before you need to have X many calories, X many, you know, uh, carbohydrates, you need to hydrate exactly this much. And well, yeah, all of that stuff is important. You know, like there's, there's no denying that you can, you can inch out small, small improvements, um, in performance and stuff by really micromanaging your nutrition and stuff. And hundred percent, if you are an athlete or you're trying to, you know, get as big as you humanly possibly can, or get as shredded as you humanly can, or whatever the goal is, you're going to as strong as you possibly can, as fit as you, whatever it is, right? Whatever performance metric or even body composition metric that you're, you're aiming for, if you are trying to be the absolute pinnacle of that, then yeah, 100%. Why wouldn't you try to inch out that little, you know, half a percent that you might get from, you know, timing your food exactly, right? However, for most people, it just doesn't matter that much outside of, you know, feeling good when you train and feeling recovered after you train, you know? So portioning your calories around your your workout does make sense from that perspective, you know, maybe having something like, again, two to three hours, we'll say one to three hours before exercise, you might even have some intra-workout nutrition if your calories are high or, again, depending on the activity, um, and then you have something afterwards to, again, refuel all whatever you've burned through during that workout, right? So they're the two general ones that you'll see. However, there is another one as well, which I fall into um, and you do fall into some days, and that is the, the double day athlete. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're doing, say, resistance training earlier in the day, and then you're doing your sport later in the day. Because I know we have a lot of guy athletes that listen to this, and I know the two of us do like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so it is different. Um, but even with that perspective, I'll just use myself as a perspective. Like I do resistance training four days per week. And I do that in the the middle of the day, we'll say 12 o'clock, just random time there. That's roughly the time anyway. Um, Do that at 12 o'clock. And then in the evening, four days per week, I have Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? So for me, you know, portioning out my calories does become more important because not only do I have to be fueled for the first session of the day, I have to be refueled by the second session of the day, right? So portioning out your calories, distributing your calories does become more important in that case, you know, and there's multiple ways that you can organize that. But all you really have to think of it conceptually is I want to be fueled for both of those sessions, right? So that probably means 
that you should be prioritizing refueling after that first session. Like that should become a bigger priority. And this is where stuff like, you know, a post-workout shake, like a, even with like sugar type stuff, some sort of glucose solution type stuff and whey immediately after your workout, that probably does become more important. You know, that's not to say that that's the protocol I use. I'm just saying that is if you were trying to inch out, be absolutely completely on top of your game as soon as possible or be as recovered as possible for that next session, it's probably a good idea, you know? So again, you have to look at like when someone gives you this information, like who are they talking to? What background do they have? And, you know, how does that actually play out in regards to your actual situation, right? But just to kind of bring it back and put this in a, a nice little wrapped up bow, um, and then we'll get on to intermittent fasting, is realistically, calorie distribution doesn't matter a huge amount, right? In a theoretical, in the sky framework, right? Like you can have all of your calories in the morning and you can have all of your calories in the evening. You can have them nicely evenly spread and it is irrelevant as long as they are the same number of calories, right? And assuming all the other variables are held steady. However, that assumption that all the other variables are held steady is a big assumption to make because the way you portion out your calories is potentially going to influence all those other variables, such as, you know, hunger, satiety, you know, your daily activity levels. Like maybe you do have a big breakfast and you're like, I feel more energetic. You move around more, that kind of stuff. So again, in a tracking world where you're tracking your calories, yeah, cool. If you just track your calories and you hit the same calories and one day you have them all in the or the vast majority of it in the morning time. And then the other day you have it in the evening time. Once you're tracking your calories, it's irrelevant, right? Because you're holding all those variables steady. And yeah, you might find my energy level is a bit down or whatever, but you're doing stuff like I'm tracking my steps as well. I'm getting my 10,000 steps per day as a standard. You're doing all the stuff to take care of all these other variables, right? But trying to move that information onto a general population, free living individuals, you know, you have to be a little bit more concerned with the timing, the portioning of those calories throughout the day, because that is actually going to influence, you know, general activity levels. If they're not tracking their daily steps, you know, again, you have to look at how the way you portion out those calories throughout the day influences that right and then also again it's like you feel hungrier you feel more satiated whatever you know that's going to influence how many calories you eat overall if you're not tracking your calories again like i said you know if you have a bigger breakfast perhaps that means that you're not going to reach for something at you know 10 o'clock 11 o'clock whatever it is and all of a sudden you're eating 500 700 extra calories just from biscuits you know so again if we're talking about a free living individual like calorie timing does actually become more important, even though you would kind of think of it the opposite way. If you're like, I'm tracking my calories, I'm being very on point with it. You know, uh, it's, you, you would think that you would then be more on point with your uh, calorie timing, but it's kind of the opposite where if you're not tracking your calories, you're not holding that variable steady. You do need to be a little bit more aware of your calorie distribution throughout the day because that does influence the total calories you eat if you're just not tracking. You know, so that is something to be aware of. Again, what population are we talking to? Who are we talking to? And, you know, how does that fit in with your actual life, your actual protocols and practices that you engage in, 
right? And then on the protein side of things, that is another layer to that argument. And again, from a health, body composition, performance, whatever you want to call it, any of those goals, we do probably want to have a pretty even distribution of protein throughout the day. <clears throat> and we can call that three to four servings of protein per day. And again, that's irregardless of if you are tracking your calories or not tracking your calories, right? We still do want to have a relatively good spread of that protein throughout the day. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to have it first thing in the morning and last thing at night. And, you know, we need to have like, oh, I'm awake for 16 hours. I need to kind of bookend and have protein feedings throughout the day. <clears throat> That's not the case. What you do need to do, though, is spread it out to some extent so that you are getting a relatively okay spread of protein throughout the day. And again, not bunching it all together, like I said earlier on, at like six, seven, eight, because there is a, a refractory period to some of the signaling processes that we want from protein, you know? Um, so yeah, spread your protein out throughout the day. And that is a good general practice. Yep, hundred percent. So like, yeah, in, in line with in line with what you said, I agree on all the above, with the only caveat that in terms of like, uh, like independent, independent of exercise, and we talk about calorie distribution um, and calorie timing, they are kind of intrinsically linked with intermittent fasting, which is basically what we're going to move on to now. And is, is there the case that um, all calorie distributions are the same once calories are basically held consistent? Um, I think probably for body composition, I think probably not for health. I do think there are some distributions that are potentially favorable, but we're probably going to talk about that more in the next podcast as it relates to, to coronal nutrition. But kind of moving on to, to fasting in general, um, I think one of the things that you need to be aware of when talking about fasting and engaging with people who discuss the research about fasting is that there's basically like there's the terminology that's used between different papers varies pretty significantly and has become more consistent i think but if you were to read a paper like there's papers from like the 90s the early 2000s even um and you you'll 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 read this paper as an intermittent fasting protocol Whereas it's basically just a means of reducing calories in the way that me or you would discuss it. So it could be that they called it intermittent fasting, but it was actually just the eight to 500 calorie deficit a few times per week. Okay. So the thing, the thing that's important to get there is that, all right, when you're talking about research outcomes, it's very important to discuss, all right, what are we actually talking about? Are we talking about like time restricted feeding where it's very clear that there's a, a feeding window that we're talking about in an intermittent fasting context, or are we talking about, alternate day fasting where we're talking about zero calories every second day or a five two distribution where you know two days are fasting five days are eating um, ad libitum or an, an isocaloric diet or whatever so there are these these different uh, means means of discussing this from a research perspective and this is something that does get a lot of discussion in maybe some of the the more, I'm not going to call it pseudoscience, but the, the part of the, the, the nutrition, fitness, health industry that maybe runs away a bit quickly with mechanistic research. Okay. So like, the, for example, people will see research on uh, rats or mice or drosophila or worms or anything. Um, and they'll basically 
totally extrapolate from that and assume that it, it matters in humans despite different uh it's a different lifespan so the relative difference between the time in one animal is totally different to the time in another differences in how we respond in terms of thermogenesis in response to feeding etc so there are differences between humans and some other animals that are studied and sometimes it can it can seem like these things are hugely promising but you do have to wait for for some human data um so yeah people do get a little bit excited and kind of run away with mechanistic reasons um, and sometimes that's without the control of just continuous energy restriction so one of the things that you'll see a lot of the more evidence-based people say is that it's all just the same as continuous calorie restriction fasting doesn't matter um and I, like i'm i'm not that confident that is that is the case like at this point in time you probably don't have that much evidence to suggest that or to to inform you of exactly whether or not there are independent benefits of more prolonged periods of fasting like it's not completely clear like are there is there is there a difference between me achieving the same calorie deficit through say 5 days of zero food and me achieving the same energy deficit with just kind of continuous small energy restriction like i don't think you can come down hard and say exactly what that difference is but i mean like step one from a kind of a, a prior estimate if you were to think about right we as 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 humans in terms of like how we evolved in feasting and fasting cycles and the way our physiology has basically um, evolved in line with that I think like you could make a sound estimate and say, look, there's probably something of benefit to potentially spending some periods um, in without food, you know, because it is different when you, uh, let's say, between a continuous energy deficit um, and a prolonged fasting period, in that you actually have much, much a significant difference in how your metabolism actually works. In that, once you deplete your your liver glycogen and you start to oxidize more fatty acids, you start to produce ketones. And at this point in time, I don't think you can you can be an evidence-based person and say that none of that matters at all. Like, I think that is a prime example of what I said at the start, where you just put a negative sign in front of the people you disagree with and assume that you're now correct. So I don't think that's a good stance to, to hold. There is some evidence in terms of like prolonged fasting um, being more beneficial for things like glycemic control. So your ability to regulate your blood glucose, your insulin sensitivity, and things like that. That's in populations who have problems with, with, um, with, with those issues in general. So more insulin resistant or type two diabetics, it does seem like that might be a promising um, intervention in those cases. And that's even when you're, when you're looking at the difference between prolonged fasting and people who are achieving an energy deficit. So you do have continuous energy restriction. Um, so there is, there is some evidence related to that. Um, there's some evidence to say that it might even be different in healthy people, um, prolonged fasting or this kind of uh, time restricted feeding type setup, particularly um, early time restricted feeding where more of the energy is distributed early in the day and the fasting window is cut off um, in the in the evening as opposed to it being say the opposite way around um, or just continuous energy restriction from in a, over a 12 hour period versus an eight hour period so point there being that we have we we have evidence to say that these things are probably not the exact same but the difficult part is that you can't come down hard in any one area and say that, oh yeah, fasting is, you know, the secret and this is what we're missing because, you know, it could be just the case that someone is going to get the vast majority of the benefits from just continuous energy restriction and there might be nothing else to it. But coming back to what we discussed earlier, the important thing to realize is that 
when we're talking about fasting, we have to consider how this intervention relates to people who are not tracking. Because again, it's not just good enough to say there's no benefit to fasting. People who do these 24, 36 hour fasts, they're just wasting their time because you could just do continuous calorie tracking, you know? So it could be the case that for, for, for someone who just doesn't want to have to think about their nutrition too much and you say to them, don't eat on Sundays. That's your one nutrition rule. That could be enough <clears throat> for them to achieve a small energy deficit across the week. Again, I'm not saying that that's the case for everyone because it could be the case that that leads to total overcompensation. And you do see this and have seen this as, as trends in the fitness industry over the last 10 years where when intermittent fasting started to kind of merge with the IIFYM, the If It Fits Your Macros crowd, basically what people did was establish terrible um, eating behaviors where they would fast all day and then binge on a load of junk at night, you know? So that's not what you want to encourage. And in that case, it's very easy to overcompensate and just basically end up negating any benefits of that fasting window. Um, so in the, in the case that we're talking about free living individuals, I think the introduction of, of uh, certain, certain guidelines relating to fasting could potentially be helpful just to reduce their energy intake spontaneously, um, even if we set the potential um, supplementary benefits of fasting that might exist aside. So you do have to consider how it relates to the individual's behavior because it's much easier if you can get someone to stick to it to say to someone, especially someone who's not that interested in nutrition, you know, hey, mom, don't eat on Sundays. That's your one nutrition rule nothing else for the moment. Okay. All right. I can try that. You know, some people do it in as part of their, you know, their religion already, you know, some, in some cultures, fasting is built in. So that could be a very simple nutrition rule for that individual, as opposed to saying, mom, I want you to track all your calories, weigh all your meals throughout the week, and then calculate a 500 calorie deficit or 300 calorie deficit across the week. You know, that might, that's see, the thing is, it's, it's always fine for people like us trainers and other people who are in the game to just say, why don't you just track your calories? It's the same thing. Um, whereas how that relates to free living individuals is a little bit different, you know? Um, so again, I'm not selling it as being uh, a solution that, that is going to be easier for people because it's going to be harder for some people. Like some people are, are going to say, you want me to not eat for 36 hours? Are you serious? You know? Um, so it just depends on who you are and what works. Yeah, and it's probably even easier to see the one where it's like the intervention is like the, the classical, we'll call it 16, eight uh, intermittent fasting yeah. where it's like, you just have an eight hour eating window, you know? And you're like, all right, I only want you to eat between 12 and 8 PM. Right. That's, that's your eating window. Nothing, nothing else out there. You basically just skip breakfast. Although I hate when people say they skip breakfast because breakfast literally means you break the fast. Like I hate, um, what's your man? James Smith always gets people, he fucking puts it out all, I think it's James Smith, um, always puts it out. He's like, oh, stop calling it intermittent fasting. You just skip breakfast, which that sounds all great and everything, but you physically cannot skip breakfast because you have to break the fast. That's the first meal of the day. Like the, the name of the meal is not dictated by when you eat it. It's dictated by the actual meal itself you know so you cannot skip breakfast well, he is the prime he's the prime example of someone who just puts negative in front of everything and assumes that he knows what he's talking about so i wouldn't uh, pay too much attention <laughs> but anyway look if he's going to be semantic and be like oh you cannot it's just called skipping breakfast you physically can't skip breakfast anyway <laughs> that's irrelevant to this conversation but um if it is the case where you're just like all right you're going to skip that 
first meal, you're going to push that back until 12 and you're just going to have a, a shortener feeding window. Like that's for someone to be like, okay, cool. I just eat less then because I've just dropped out one meal from my day. And maybe you do, excuse me, overcompensate a little bit and eat more at your, your quote unquote lunch um, and dinner. Um, you maybe eat a little bit more because you're a little bit hungrier, but maybe it's enough that it's not reducing the calorie deficit too much, you know? Um, so that could be a very easy intervention, but just pedaling back a little bit when you were just talking about people like to kind of sell all of these things for uh, fasting protocols, right? Or, or people look to go back in history and be like, oh, like we humans evolved through like uh, feed and famine cycles and all that sort of stuff but they only ever focus on the positive side of things, right? They only ever go like, oh, here's the health and longevity benefits. Oh, here's the whatever cognitive benefits. But just think of it. It, These feed and famine cycles, that's cool. We went through that, but you know, a certain percentage of the population died every single time we went through that, you know? So like, do we just ignore that and be like, oh, I like, yeah, like, of course there's obviously going to be individuals that die when they do this. Let's just ignore that. Or the fact that, you know, the uh, large percentage of the population was effectively functionally infertile during those famine cycles, you know, where like, especially, you know, women are a little bit more prone to this where, you know, you you literally see it. Well, I'm not gonna say they're more prone to it. It's actually very, that's incorrect, but uh, it's more easily seen where, you know, women just lose their menstrual cycle. They're just not, they're not uh, a free cycling uh, female anymore, you know, where, because there's such a, in such a, an energy deficit, you know, there's no free energy available. So they're like, all right, let's set off or reduce this, uh, uh, reproductive function. You know, let's just, let's not put calories towards that because we don't have calories to go towards that. So why aren't people selling that as well? Being like, oh yeah, your fasting protocol, you know, causes functional infertility. You know, no one, no one says that and being like, oh, that's a great idea. They're like, oh, you know, your fasting protocol increases your cognitive health and your, your lifespan and all that sort of stuff. It's like, you can't just pick and choose what you want from a protocol. Like the protocol is the protocol. It results in these adaptations. You you can't just ignore them, you know? And yeah, there probably is some transient benefits uh, for short term that you, you gain without dipping into any of the the negatives but you have to clearly define where that point is because if you're giving information to everyone you know there's going to be people in there that go oh this person said like a a two-day fast per week is a good idea you know i'm actually going to do two weeks out of every five of fasting you know and i'm going to just you know take it up a level you know but so there's going to be people that take it to extremes and you have to factor that in when you are giving information or at least, you know, caveat it and be like, this is the protocol. These are the adaptations that you get. Don't do more than this or whatever. You have to explain that to individuals because people will always take it to the nth degree. They'll be like, how far can I push? Can I fast for 90 days? You know, people do that shit, you know? And it's like, all right, I thought that was a hunger strike. Like that's basically what that is. You know, people die doing that shit, you know? Um, so you, you have to be a lot more clear in what you're actually trying to achieve with any of these things, you know? Um, but just going back to the, the actual, we'll call it the 16, eight style intermittent fasting. Again, there's a, a huge difference between, you know, giving that as a protocol to someone that is tracking calories versus giving that as a protocol to someone that is free living because in the free living individual, like you could see huge benefits to that, you know, in the tracking individual, you know, I don't think it's going to be that, you know, life-changing of a protocol. 
in both individuals, it probably is going to make it a little bit easier to stick to a calorie deficit, you know? Um, and you might notice some cognitive benefits in the morning time, assuming you skip the, the, the morning meal, you know, um, and you, you delay your, your first feeding uh, until later in the day. You, know, you might notice some cognitive benefits because you're not thinking about food. It's just, you know, you don't have that, we'll call it 30 minutes of eating and preparing food, whatever. You don't have that interruption and you don't have like the maybe, you know, post digestive kind of like, oh, I feel a little bit, you know, relaxed and all that kind of stuff. And maybe you can be a little bit more. Uh, sympathetically driven in terms of your nervous system output you know you can be like drink a coffee you know you're a little bit more hyped up and you can stay that way because you're not in that kind of post-absorptive state you know kind of rest and digest type thing so you know you can feel like oh i'm way more energetic in the mornings but it's just because you know your nervous system is like oh man i need to get food like i need to hype this individual up so that you know, I can get through this. And again, like you think of like, you're still mobilizing energy from the body somewhere when you're in that kind of state, because that happens pretty much every night. Um, so, you know, your cortisol levels are a little bit higher. So to, to mobilize the, the fuel, and that can make you feel a little bit, oh, I'm a bit more like wired, a little bit more turned on, you know, especially if you do can, can, uh, bring in some like caffeine during that restriction period, that can really be like, oh, I don't have anything to buffer this caffeine digestion. So I feel that a little bit more and you're already in a, uh, a nervous system state where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm a little bit more hyped up anyway, you know? So you have to factor all those things in because that's generally the protocol people uh, bring in where they're like, oh, I have like uh, a restricted feeding window. And then in the, the, the morning time when I'm not eating, I do have like two or three coffees to kind of give me that boost in, in energy. And it's like, those coffees are probably more, we'll call it effective, in the morning time when you're not eating, you know? Um, so it, it, it is like, we have to actually really dive into who are we talking to when we talk about an intermittent fasting protocol, because the, like the actual outcomes of it are different. You know, if we're talking about someone who's tracking and we're talking about someone who is not tracking, like they are completely different. You know, again, it's, it, 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 I, reading the research or reading the, the protocols people put out online, it's like you're, you're taking the results from one population and then making it out as if it applies to this other population. Like again, you take the results that someone got in a free living population and then going, right, my intermittent fasting protocol with tracking uh, is going to be even better. And it's like, that's, you know, there, there might be some, again, like you said, like better glycemic control, or there might be some of these, you know, potential benefits, but it's hard to tell if you wouldn't have just got those benefits by getting leaner overall, like you wouldn't have got like, uh, some better insulin sensitivity and better glycemic control just by losing body fat over a continuous caloric deficit without intermittent fasting over 20 weeks. And we can't tell at this stage, we don't know, you know? Um, but again, we don't also don't know if there's, potential long-term negative benefits to intermittent fasting protocols. So you can't just look at the positives and be like, Oh, there probably is some, you know, uh, you get some uh, more liver depletion or more uh, muscle glycogen depletion when you are in these intermittent fasting states. And maybe that has some benefits or maybe you get some more ketone production and maybe that has some benefits or whatever it is. We can't also ignore that there's potentially negatives with that as well. You know, like that's very, just as possible as there are, 
positives, you know? And there's always this kind of bias in research with nutritional stuff as well, where we kind of just always look for the, the positives in things. We're like, what does this nutrient do in terms of the positives? And it's only after we establish that that we go, all right, now let's start looking at the, the negatives being like, oh, there's actually a, you know, this is a toxicity level thing, you know? Like, so you have to look at that with the, the research on intermittent fasting or even the protocols with intermittent fasting. Like this is a relatively new practice in terms of the, uh, the nutritional side of things. Like yes, there are religious, spiritual and whatever type of practices, but no one was studying those long-term. They're being like, what are the, the health benefits? Like, I know we do have a lot of research on say like a, um, Muslims engaging in Ramadan, like the, the, the differences in their like blood lipids and, you know, glycemic control and all that kind of stuff. But again, they're free living individuals. They're not tracking their calories. So again, if you're a different population to that, you have to take that into account. And also you can't just ignore that there are potentially, you know, actual population changes. Like I always use the Eskimos as an example. Like people use, well, I don't know if that's a racist term. I don't know what we're supposed to call them. Inuits, maybe. I don't know. Um, but uh, the uh, native people to the northern regions. Um, but like th those individuals, like people always like to use them when they're discussing uh, the benefits of a ketogenic diet. But those individuals have adaptations that allow them to not get ketoacidosis. Like all the people that got ketoacidosis died. So there's been a selective pressure for uh, individuals that just don't get this acidosis, you know, so they, they could eat a completely ketogenic diet and not have any negative effects because they have these different enzymes. They have this different ability to metabolize this, you know? So there's been a selective pressure over thousands of years. So if you look at a population and you go, Oh, well, there's been this selective pressure over thousands of years. They probably have this different adaptations to this uh, protocol. You can't just automatically then translate, translate that into a different population. You know, um, so that that does have to be taken into account when you do discuss this. Like, it's like it, you have to be very specific in terms of what you are discussing, right? Then on the intermittent fasting side of things as well, we have to look at protein, right? Um, so we're just after saying earlier on that there there is a benefit potentially from just having a relatively even distribution of protein throughout the day from a cognitive perspective, satiety perspective, muscle perspective. How do we align that with the, this intermittent fasting protocol that we bring in where we're either doing like a few hours not eating in the morning, that's the general practice, uh, versus, or even like not eating for two days per week? Because they're probably the two most uh, used protocols, the 5-2 protocol where people just don't eat two days per week. They don't have to be the same day after day, two days. They can be like Wednesday and a Sunday or whatever, you know? Um, or the, the, the eight sixteen type deal where you're just only have a feeding window of eight hours and you're, uh, you're not eating for 16 hours, which is basically the opposite of what most people do. They sleep for eight hours or relatively, and then they eat for 16 hours. So regardless, unless you are waking up in the middle of the night to eat, you are engaging in some fasting every day, just putting it out there as a caveat. Right. Anyway, go on. Um, yeah. So personally, like when I think about like, trying to reconcile the protein thing with the intermittent fasting, I view it as a trade-off. Okay. I don't think like while I, while I would probably put myself maybe slightly in favor of thinking that there's probably, uh, you know, that, that I'd be fairly pro fasting. I think, I think there's something to fasting. I think it's a fairly sound, sound protocol, especially because I do eat in a more 
free living manner and don't track my calories. So as a result, I have that bias towards like, okay, what actually works, you know, in the real world when people aren't tracking. And I think fasting can be useful. But with that said, if I was a bodybuilder trying to maximize every last inch of muscle mass, I would not probably be engaging in prolonged periods prolonged periods of fasting periods of fasting very often um it's, it just goes against pretty much what we have been discussing um and i don't think there's i don't think that in this case there's the a theoretical mechanism that we could propose that would really you know justify it being uh, superior for muscle building so i don't think it's superior for muscle building by any means i think that you might have to accept some sort of trade-off and that that trade-off would increase the more that you increase the duration um, or frequency, you could say, of your fasting, you know? So I think if you're, if you're talking about something like, a, a, let's say, a 12-12, which is very reasonable, like, I mean, that's normal. That should be kind of what you're eating anyway. If you're t- talking about like a 12-hour fasting period, 12-hour eating window, does that make much of a difference? No, probably not. I wouldn't be writing home about that. You know, I don't, I, I don't think there's, there's, there's much of a reason to be concerned about that. Even in, in research where I think I'm almost certain there's, a, there's at least one, if not multiple, 16, eight uh, fasting studies on uh, muscle building or muscle retention. Um, and once overall protein is taken care of and resistance training is, is adequate, like it doesn't make that much of a difference. So it's not something you need to sweat too much, but again, it, it depends where your priorities lie. Because like if you're, if you're considering like 1%, 2%, 3% changes um, over years to be like very significant, then one, that's not going to be taken care of in a six to 12 week resistance training study. It won't be measured. So you have to ask yourself, um, like, are, are you willing to, to basically engage in nutrition protocols that you don't have evidence for because they're not going to be measured within a particular study. And if I was a bodybuilder and that was my thing and that was my main goal, or if you had asked 18 year old Gary, like you, you do, you do everything to get every last percent because like, that's what kind of what bodybuilding is about or, or any. And that's, athletic that's how you got up to 180 kilos. So that's how I got here. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's the case with any athletic endeavor. So in that case, you're thinking, okay, well, I'm going to do it because there might be something there, even if I don't know what's there. Um, so that's the way I would reconcile it. I would say this, look, it's probably not the best to be engaging in prolonged fasting if you are considered or considering uh, maximizing every last bit of muscle. Um, I think if you're engaging in multiple 24-hour fasts, like two days of complete fasting per week, I think you might have to accept a bit of a trade-off, especially if you're training on those days. Um, but I think overall for most people, I think the, if, if it's helping your dietary adherence and that's, what's keeping you on track, like it's, it's probably worth it. Um, the, the only thing I would say is that you can, you can do things in your favor to make sure that that trade-off is, is as small as possible. So for example, don't make your fasting day the same day as your hardest lower body training day, you know, common sense right if you're going to have a fasting day you know make it a a rest day um i typically when i'm advising people i generally say look if you're going to have a fasting day pick a really busy day of work or something like that that your your mind is occupied the whole time and a lot of the time maybe 60 70 percent people are like yeah that actually suits me because i actually i don't think about food much at work whereas others they're like 
no, no, no food that when I'm busiest at work, that's when I need my food. You know, that's when I need, uh, especially like manual labor or something. And that's when you need to be well fed. So it does depend on who you are. Like personally, I like a more prolonged fasting period on like today on a Sunday because uh, it just kind of suits me. Like sometimes that's not the case, but a lot of the time it just, it just suits me get up because I generally eat a bit more on a Saturday anyway. So on a Sunday for me, I'm like, yeah, right. Get up. We do the, I'll have a, a coffee or whatever. We do the podcast. Then it's 11 or 12. Might do a bit of work, might go for a walk, might go for a run, come back, do a bit of study. Um, and then I'll have, you know, my dinner five or six o'clock and maybe an extra bit of protein to top up, up on protein. But it's some means of, of introducing fasting, sometimes 24 hours, sometimes not. Um, but yeah, that would be my perspective on the, on the protein thing. I think there's a trade-off there. I think you can do things to minimize it. And I think if you're thinking about everything in terms of maximizing muscle building, there's, there's going to be some trade-off uh, there in terms of things that might even benefit your health. You know, you might be the case that you actually have to have massive meals right before bed that sometimes compromise your sleep. And that's kind of the nature of extremes, really. Yeah, like I always think of it like, again, it just comes down to this argument where <clears throat> people always just focus on the positives. But, you know, they're focusing on the positives of a fasting protocol being like, oh, it helps with health. And all of those are pretty yeah. much mediated through like the AMPK pathway, if you want to really just <laughs> refine it down to that. Um, which like, I'm not going to say all of the benefits. That's, that's probably incorrect. But a lot of the benefits are through this AMPK pathway. And we can call this a kind of a fat loss pathway, if you will. Um, so they, they get those through this kind of fat loss stuff. But also that does occur when you are just reducing calories overall. So I don't think anyone would argue that the best environment for building muscle is one where you have reduced calories. You know, I, I don't I don't think someone's going to say that that's the best environment. Right. So why would you then say, OK, uh, a hormonal uh, signaling cellular environment, whatever you want to call it uh where we are tapping into those same pathways that result in fat loss why would you think that that's going to be the best for you know muscle gain it's probably not right however that doesn't mean that if you fast you're going to lose bucket loads of muscle you know and i do think that there are like that that thought process of oh if i don't if i'm not in a continuous uh positive nitrogen state i'm just going to lose so much muscle like if, if you genuinely think that then and you must be fucking scared all the time like what like you go three four five hours without a meal like all of a sudden you're like ah, fucking lost a hundred grams of muscle like if you're if you're if you're losing that much muscle that quickly like you probably didn't own that muscle to begin with like you know like it's just not a concern in, in my mind right however again i i don't think that it would be you'd be able to easily argue that prolonged fasting is a good or beneficial strategy for building uh, excessive levels of muscle. It will call it that. Um, but I don't think that it's detrimental to maintaining high degree, a high degree of muscle mass. You know, like I, I just don't see how that would be the case. I don't see why your body would preferentially target muscle rather than its preferred fuel sources like why would it go i know we have some you know glucose freely available here i know we have some glycogen that we could tap into i know we have some fatty acids but you know what i'm actually just going to bypass those two things and tap into muscle that's all i want really you know like that's not what your body wants to do you know and um, now that might be more of a concern if you are i don't know fucking five percent body fat you know then you're like all right cool like it's very likely that you know 
you don't have a lot of excess fat to use. Maybe your liver glycogen hasn't been topped up in fucking 16 weeks because you've been getting shredded um, and your, your overall calories are low, you know, then maybe you might start tapping into some muscle mass. So when you do get to those really, really lean levels, then there probably is a point where you want to be a lot more focused on having a positive nitrogen balance as long throughout the day as you possibly can. Like you want to be ensuring that that signal to keep retain that muscle is there multiple times throughout the day. Right. So again, it depends on the exact nature of where that individual is, you know, and obviously goes without saying, if you are using something like, I don't know, insulin, um, then this probably is a lot more important to really dial in on. So if you are a bodybuilder and you're on fucking, you know, a few IUs of insulin um, or even growth hormone, um, you know, there, there probably are even testosterone as well. There are interactions here that we need to look into a little bit deeper and then realize that, you know, maybe this isn't the best protocol to be using, but obviously that's a discussion for a whole other industry. Um, but uh, yeah, is there anything else you want to cover on the intermittent fasting side of things? Actually, just before we, we kind of just wrap that up, I'd just like to say that <clears throat> I do actually intermittent fast myself. So I actually have the bias that I actually enjoy intermittent fasting. Like my day basically goes, morning time wake up do all my triage work like i said it before when the 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 one where we're discussing about what we do with college at the moment um <clears throat> yeah i'm basically wake up in the morning and i just don't focus on food don't think about food until after i do my resistance training which is around 12 o'clock you know so we'll say my first meal of the day is one two that kind of time frame accounting for you know cooking time and all of that jazz um, so I'm doing an hour of resistance training, cook my food straight after, eat my food, and then I eat another time later in the day, we'll say five o'clock, you know, and then I would normally, if, you know, the country wasn't closed down, would normally uh, do jujitsu at, we'll say seven to nine, like two hours of jujitsu. Um, and then after that, I would have my last meal of the day, which would, you know, maybe be some oats and whey or something like that, you know? Um, so that means that I'm fasting into my first training session, but like it's not for me like it's not that's not my most important training session like i i kind of prefer being fasted um with that session i just feel a little bit better um but also realize that i have also eaten sufficient calories throughout the day previously like i've i've eaten a big bowl of oats the after the jujitsu um and while i have obviously tapped into that to some extent in the morning i'm also just not that active from like whatever time I wake up 6am till 12, I've literally done maybe 400 steps most days, you know, by that stage. Cause I'm literally just sitting at my computer doing the work that needs to be done. Um, so I'm just not active. So I'm not burning through grams of fucking, uh, calories. <laughs> uh, so coming into my session, I'm well fed. If I was, you know, way more active then I probably would eat before that session. And, um, but for me, I just, I feel good go do the session. It's not that demanding. Like it's an hour session. It's not like it's two hours of, you know, ridiculously heavy lifting, you know, like, yeah, you might, the weights I lift might be heavier than what someone else lifts relatively speaking, but it's not like I'm pushing the boundaries of uh, human physical performance here, you know? Um, so I don't need to be as 100% micromanaging the, the minutiae 
of the diet, you know, and it's just a protocol that works for me. And that's what I do most days, even the days, cause I only do four resistance training sessions and then four jujitsu sessions, sometimes five. Um, and then on the Wednesday, which I have off, like I still fast that day. And then I just, my first meal is like one o'clock. Same again, same again on the, the Saturday. I, I might do a jujitsu session, two hours of jujitsu. Again, depending on how beat up I am from the week, depending on how much college work I have had to do, depending on how much triage work I got done or didn't get done uh, throughout the week, I might do two hour, you know, cause there's an open mat and stuff. Um, and I like to like, you know, see how good I'm getting. Um, on that day but i don't eat before that that's usually 10 to 12 so again i come out at 12 o'clock and have my first meal after that same again as gary on the sunday that's when we record the podcast that's what day it is today when we're recording this and same again we generally record the podcast we do an hour meeting rundown of you know uh, emotional feedback with each other we just talk through our feelings how much we love each other all that stuff and um, sometimes we talk about how business stuff that we need to talk about it's rare that we talk about that it's more about the feelings you know um and then we just record the podcast. And then again, that's generally, we end up around the kind of 11, 12 mark. And that's when I buy my food for the week. So I'll walk down, I'll do a little bit of exercise, get some steps in, walk down to the shops. Nowadays, um, because my local shop is Dundrum Town Center. Um, so there's hundreds of people that go there. Um, I generally have to wait to, to get into the shop. There's a huge queue outside. So that's all my my day looks like on a Sunday nowadays. And then after that, I eat my first meal. So every single one of those days I've fasted for at least 16 hours. Right. Um, so I have a, a pro in intermittent fasting bias for my own schedule, my own, uh, whatever you want to call it. However, I also would struggle with that if I was really trying to gain weight i probably wouldn't struggle because i'd probably just drink calories to do it but if i had to get in five thousand six thousand calories to gain weight then like i'm eating like three thousand calories right now and it's a slight deficit for me you know and just i weigh 100 kilos so i'm relatively speaking that is a deficit um for me and given my ten thousand steps per day and my rough two sessions per day um um but if I was trying to gain and I was having to really push those calories up, you know, cause I do have a bit of an adaptive, uh, metabolism where I just start getting warmer and warmer and fucking depleting all those calories that I eat, you know, I probably would start bringing in something like a breakfast. Um, even though again, it's not breakfast, you eat breakfast every day regardless, but like some, something like a, a morning feeding just purely so that I could get more calories in. So again, it, it changes, depends on the exact situation, depends on the individual, depends on all of those kind of things. Yeah, 100%. And the only thing I would actually add, as in like uh, one of the, a personal thing and a, a, a philosophical thing and something you don't necessarily have to agree it with is that I think that if you are the type of person that like you freak out every time you get a little bit hungry and you need to eat immediately and you can't deal without food and stuff. I just think that's pretty weak um, unless you have a disease that necessitates that sort of response. So, I mean, it is another, it's a, it's a genuine goal as in like, if you don't want to be that person and you want to feel like, you know, if I'm ever in a situation where I don't have food for 12 hours or 24 hours or 36 hours, if you want to be the person that's like, I'm going to be cool in that situation. I'm prepared for that. You know, I've, I've trained for that. Um, then that is actually another genuine benefit. And like personally, I would feel really uncomfortable with the idea that 
oh, if I don't eat for three hours, I start to get anxious and feel like, oh no, I can't do anything. Because some bodybuilders are like that, man. Some bodybuilders will not train if they haven't eaten for three hours. And like, not just out of like, oh no, it's just not optimal, so I'll train later. But because like, oh no, you, you can't train if you haven't eaten. So like in general, I think it's a pretty strong practice to get used to being without food as well, because minimizing the amount of crutches you need to live your life is, is fairly sound in general. So yeah, that's the only thing. You're saying that if people don't have hardship in their life, they should search out hardships. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly it. Oh, I can't wait to get my cat and nine tails and just start fucking flagellating myself and being like, I've no hardships in my life. (laughs) Gary said I have to do this. Unreal. That's what you need. No, it's not. (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, that's uh, exactly what I'm saying. So if you've already nailed all that stuff, like you can go without food for, I think like for me, six months is the sweet spot. Um, <laughs> six months without food. Um, but that's cause you're 180 kilos shredded. Like, yeah, it's I've got a lot of muscle to eat up. And so I'm looking a bit skinny at the moment. Um, few weeks or a few months without any sleep. That's when I generally start to take out the sword and just start to, you know, smacking myself in the back or whatever. That would be a terrible idea with a sword, Gary. But anyway, look, I understand that you don't understand history. That's fine. Um, But anyway, the next thing, the final thing that we want to touch on is the idea of chrononutrition, which is effectively what we have been discussing, right? But it's actually different than what we have been discussing as well, right? And chrono meaning effectively time, chronos, you know, you know yourself. You know your Greek history, Gary. Who's chronos? Of course. What? What's Kronos mean? Time. You just said. Interesting. Do you know your Greek history? I don't know. I don't 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 know my Irish history. No, oh, I do. I know my Greek history very, very vaguely. That's disgusting. <laughs> anyway, look, I'm not gonna explain it to you. You can go search that up on your own time. But anyway, look. This is what Patty always says though. He introduces something real vague, pretends he understands it, and then moves on. <laughs> That's not what I do. I introduce something really vague just to troll you, and then you go, fucking fuck. And then you go search it up yourself, and then you go, Jesus, that Patrick fella, he actually knows what he's talking about. Um, but anyway, look, that's irrelevant to this conversation. Um, chrononutrition, again, it is the, the, the temporal domain to nutrition, and there is a lot more than what we are discussing here, but it mainly pertains to free living individuals who are not tracking their calories. Like, there are, there's actually so many interesting. Uh, we'll call them signaling events uh, that occur both from like the stomach perspective, from the digestive tract perspective, from like the liver perspective um, that occur in response to how you actually time your, your calories and how you actually distribute them throughout the day. Right. But well, we both could record an episode on that um, I'd rather just get an expert on. So that's probably what we're going to do. Um, that might be the next episode. It might not. We'll see what the crack is. But you may see this discussed and you might be like, how does this fit into what we just discussed here in, in terms of like we just talk, talked about the temporal domain to, you know, calorie distribution throughout the day, you know, the temporal domain to nutrition, if you want to call it like that, right? Which is effectively chrononutrition, right? But we've just said that it kind of doesn't matter, right? But you'll read all this or maybe read someone's interpretation of the research. And all of a sudden I start going on about how much this actually matters, right? Like how much of a difference you're like, Oh, someone had uh, more calories at breakfast and someone had more calories at like dinner. And that resulted in two completely different 
uh, outcomes. You know, one of them is like one of them lost weight and one of them gained weight. You know, it might be like, oh, fuck. So if I eat calories in the evening, that means I'm more likely to gain weight, you know? But again, we have to caveat that generally with the, the point that they are in free living, free eating humans. They're not tracking their calories. So calories are not the same. However, there is also research on isocaloric diets that do no differences, right? So again, rather than diving in deep here uh, in this episode, we're going to get an expert on, but I do want to have it in your mind that there is potential benefits, potential negatives in how you actually distribute your, your calories throughout the day. Right. And, um, and this is both a, we'll call it a genetic thing, uh, but also a preference thing. Again, we discussed on some of the issues that occur, like the, the satiety, how hungry and all that kind of stuff that you feel throughout the day, which might then change the amount of calories you eat. Um, but there are some other things that go on, especially in like the, the level of the liver, for example, that maybe you do have a genetic predisposition to certain liver diseases and maybe some actual timing protocols make more sense for you, even if they aren't perfectly aligned with your, your preferences, you know? So there, there is more to the discussion, right? However, if you are looking to just change your body composition, improve your performance and improve your health overall as a general, you know, point, you know, your calorie distribution doesn't matter once calories are controlled for, you know, like you're going to get, if you look at it from a, a, a magnitude of effect type deal, like having your calories at an appropriate level, that's going to get you 90, 95, 98% of the benefits. You know, like if you have excess body fat to lose, then losing that body fat is going to result in better health. You know what I mean? So having that perspective of I basically I just need to get a protocol that allows me to lose that excess body fat, you know, then you're going to get better health as a result. You know what I mean? So it doesn't matter what protocol you actually use, you're going to see the benefits from that, you know, obviously up to a point. I'm not saying that, you know, you have to lose all your body fat completely and that's what leads to health. I'm just saying if you are in a, a, a body fat distribution bracket, that, you know, this is a, an at-risk category for X, Y, and Z diseases, then, you know, bringing in a protocol that leads to uh, fat loss is probably a good idea. And you're going to see health benefits from that, you know? Um, so that's what I'd like to caveat, the, the chrononutrition discussion with. Absolutely. And as you said, no need to dig in any deeper to that for the moment because we will discuss, just be discussing it probably on um, next Monday's podcast, uh, most likely, depending on the guest's availability. And if not, it'll be the Monday after. So yeah, that's, that's it really. If you're interested in following along with us, learning more about our work and reading more, watching more interesting videos, etc., best place to get involved is to first start by subscribing to the Triage Method newsletter. And you can find that linked in the description box below. Um, so that includes the content that we've posted and produced, published, etc., as well as recommended resources from around the internet and an exclusive post slash article in each email um, that you'll probably find interesting. Um, as well as that, you can join the Triage Method community. So that's the best place to keep in touch with us in terms of asking questions and giving suggestions as to you know what we discuss in the podcast or our YouTube channel, etc. But you can also, if you'd like to submit a question anonymously that's not in the Facebook group, there's a question form 
below in the description box as well. Um, otherwise, if you're interested in online coaching, we do have one-to-one -one and group options available. Um, and that's with myself, Paddy or Lee in the one-to-one -one coaching. And then when it comes to the group coaching, we've got male and female options available. And for the ladies, Breed Long leads the ladies group coaching. Um, so she obviously, you know, understands all of your needs better than us. And she's doing a fantastic job of providing recipes and supporting um, the ladies that are in their, in their training pursuits. Um, as well as that, you can get involved with our eBooks. So there's program templates and there's the beginner's guidebook. And now is a good time to get involved with those upskill a little bit, have some training program ideas, understand the basics of training and nutrition. And then if you want to follow along with our actual social media, of course, you can follow our Instagram, Triage Method, Skinny Gaz, or The Real Paddy Farrell. Um, not that active, but hey, get involved. Uh, Twitter as well, Triage Method, Facebook, Triage Method, and YouTube, Triage Method. If you were to pick one, I'd subscribe to YouTube um, and you can get involved with the Facebook group anyway and keep in, keep in touch with us and keep up to date with all the content as well as the newsletter, of course. 100%. You're a good boy, Gary. Um, I've nothing else to add. Um, so I'll talk to everyone again. If they're not in the Facebook group, because we're active in the Facebook group all the time, but if you're not in there or you're not, you know, subscribe to our YouTube or whatever, we will talk to you again on Thursday when you listen to this again. Peace out.